Italy remains one of the largest economies in the European region, but like most players in the world marketplace, Italy needs foreign direct investment to help stabilize its economic landscape and drive growth. How do those objectives align with the country's oversight of potential investments from outside its borders? Jones Day's Stefano Crocio and Chase Kanicki are here to talk about it. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Working primarily out of Jones Day's Milan office, M&A partner Stefano Crocio advises public and private corporate clients and financial investors, especially in the context of cross-border M&A transactions. Pertinent to our discussion today, he has significant experience advising multinationals regarding their investments or divestments in Italy. Jones Day's Chase Kanicki advises and represents clients in foreign direct investment matters, including filing CFIUS notices and negotiating mitigation agreements. He is based in Washington, D.C., and assists clients navigate the complex issues associated with international trade and national security matters. Stefano Chase, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Dave. You know, in doing some research uh, preparing for our conversation today, I ran across some information about the investment climate in Italy. And it turns out this is a very open economy. Uh, One survey I found said that Italy is now ranked 10th globally and 4th in the EU in terms of a FDI confidence index. So it appears this is an open economy and that they're actually seeking investment. That said, there are some controls in that we'll talk about this morning, I'm sure. So Stefano, talk about what kind of national FDI system Italy has in place today. Yeah, thank you, David, uh, for the question. And you're right. I mean, Italy has uh, traditionally been uh, a country that uh, has welcomed foreign investment. And essentially, the main FDI screening system that uh, Italy has in place uh, is a system that is colloquially referred to as uh, the golden powers. This is kind of uh, a moniker that indicates uh, an evolution of uh, what originally was referred to as a golden share. That got introduced in the mid-90s during the first wave of Italian privatizations. And uh, essentially, it uh, allowed uh, the government uh, to have uh, disproportionate powers uh, in certain uh, formerly um, state-owned companies that uh, were being privatized Mm -hmm. by retaining uh, a nominal equity interest in those companies. Then, uh, you know, later on, the system evolved uh, to what it is right now by essentially moving away from the requirement to hold an interest in the companies to essentially having powers, the government having powers Mm -hmm. in Italian companies that operate in certain specific industries that are contemplated by the regulations about this FDI screening system. Okay, let's pick up on that. Which industries are affected by these golden powers? So even here, originally, uh, the system had, uh, let's say, two main areas uh, of uh, focus. Uh, The first one is uh, defense and uh, national security, I would say kind of uh, unsurprisingly. And the second one was kind of a container for three different uh, macro industries, these being energy, communications, uh, and transportation. Then uh, later on, the system got, uh, let's say, updated uh, fairly recently. In December 2017, uh, the government extended uh, the second uh, basket of uh, industries to include uh, what they refer to as uh, high-tech companies, 
And this is uh, language that actually the Italian government borrowed uh, almost to the T from uh, the EU regulation uh, that has introduced uh, um, a screening system, uh, a EU-wide screening system for FDIs. And so it covers uh, sectors such as artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, space and nuclear, financial infrastructures, uh, interestingly enough, and and then particularly of uh, interest uh, to many clients, I think, dual-use products, uh, because, you know, this can, uh, of course, affect products that uh, may not necessarily be intuitively subject to this kind of screening. And the last bit of uh, news, and essentially this is really very recent developments, uh, because um, last month the government uh, essentially issued a decree to also specifically make sure that uh, the 5G technology be covered uh, by these golden powers. And so this is kind of the status at this point. Okay, go back a second. You talked about dual-use products, was it? Yes. Give me an example, please. So dual-use products uh, are a number of products that, again, may not necessarily make you think that uh, they are, you know, conceived to be used in the context of, uh, for instance, uh, defense and national security. So they are products that can have, uh, let's say, common civil applications, uh, but also be used in the context of defense equipment uh, or apparatus uh, or in the national security uh, segment. One example could be software, for instance, that could be used both for, again, civil use or communication systems, uh, but uh, that can also be used in the context of uh, weaponry or, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, um, military aircraft or Navy ships. Okay. So this could give the Italian government very broad oversight, I think when they take a dual-use product kind of position? Absolutely, absolutely. This is uh, exactly right, Dave. And uh, these last uh, changes, uh, which, by the way, have not uh, come into effect yet because uh, the government uh, has been delegated to issue essentially secondary regulations to narrow down and uh, specify more in detail the specific type of products that would fall within uh, the scope uh, of this uh, extension of its uh, FDI screening powers uh, has not been issued yet. So, But this should be forthcoming, and when it does, uh, you're absolutely right. This will trigger many more filings. Interesting. Let's bring in Chase Konecki for a minute. Chase, based on what you've heard so far during this discussion, he mentioned that, well, this is sort of mirroring what the EU is doing. Is anything you've heard this morning surprised you, or is it sounding very familiar, or what's your take so far? Yeah, I think, uh, good question. I think I'm actually a little bit of both. I'm a little surprised at how familiar all that sounded to me. I mean, it sounds like Italy is essentially in a very similar position to the U.S. from an FDI perspective. I mean, the U.S. has traditionally focused on the same types of industries and products that Stefano laid out, things like the defense products and mm-hmm. and foreign investments in so-called U.S. critical infrastructure, energy, transportation, and the like. But also, um, as a result of a statute that was passed in the middle of last year, the U.S. government is also putting higher fences, if you will, around certain types of higher-end technologies that traditionally have not been subject to export controls, stringent export controls, 
but are nonetheless the types of technologies that the U.S. government and apparently the Italian government have recognized are sensitive to their respective national securities. And these are technologies like artificial intelligence, right. semiconductor technology. And so the U.S. government, similar to the Italian government, right now is working through and struggling with trying to identify the specific types of, for example, artificial intelligence that it deems to be critical to its national security. Which I think is a pretty difficult task. I mean, if you look on any company's website, I mean, they're marketing that they're using AI. So what, what separates non-sensitive AI from sensitive AI? I don't know that I know the answer to that. Well, you know, it, it's another case where I believe, you know, the technology and the science and the advancements are way out in front of our regulators and our rulemaking and our laws. And it's an unenviable position for them to be in. And some of this might be out of a an abundance of caution. These kind of broad powers are giving themselves to kind of keep an eye and maybe you don't blame them. Well, let's talk about what happens with a specific deal. Stefano, talk about reporting requirements. Let's say a deal falls into one of these relevant industries we've been talking about. Are there reporting requirements to the Italian government? And if so, who's responsible for doing the reporting? Is it the buyer or the seller? Yeah, that's an excellent question, David. Uh, the answer to the first part of the question is yes. Uh, so the Italian FDI screening system uh, provides for uh, mandatory uh, filing with the Italian uh, government. And uh, in terms of the second part of your question, so who's responsible for it? Uh, it depends uh, on uh, the type of deal. So essentially, in a stock deal, the responsible party is the buyer which has a deadline after signing the agreement and before closing, essentially, to file uh, with the Italian government, uh, whilst, by contrast, in an asset deal, the responsible party is the seller, mm. uh, uh, who will be required to file before approval of, uh, essentially, the corporate resolutions of authorizing the deal, be it uh, a merger, spin-off, uh, an asset sale. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned a stock deal. Does the transferred stake or percentage of ownership in the company need to be in excess of a certain or set minimum to trigger reporting requirements? And this is also a very interesting uh, uh, question, and I think the answer like, is interesting as well, because it depends on uh, which of the two, let's call them baskets that we were talking about before, applies. So... In the sector of defense and national security, the thresholds are minimal, meaning if uh, we're talking about uh, an investment in an Italian-listed company that mm -hmm. operates in those areas, you may be required to file uh, for an investment which is as low as 3%. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and to some extent, uh, for private companies, it's even worse, meaning that uh, there is uh, no set uh, minimum threshold. So in order to essentially be as cautious as possible, you should file regardless of the size of the investment. Whilst yeah. in the second basket, that the threshold there is much higher and essentially the requirement is a controlling interest. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. So let's say I'm involved in a deal and I don't report. For whatever reasons, I forgot, I'm going to try and sneak this through or whatever. I've got to imagine there are some pretty serious consequences for failing to report this sort of transaction that's covered by these requirements. Stefano, can you talk about what those uh, repercussions might be? 
Yeah, and this is something uh, really relevant, especially because uh, given uh, the broadening of uh, the industries that uh, fall within the scope of these powers that we were discussing before, and to your point, Dave, uh, sometimes uh, it may even be kind of a genuine mistake, meaning that, uh, you know, a purchaser or a seller don't realize that um, one of the product lines uh, mm-hmm. of the target companies uh, do fall within the scope of application. So they don't file not because they're trying to get away with it, so to speak, but right, just because right. they don't realize it. Oh. And uh, the consequences are significant because uh, essentially one consequence that is common regardless of the type of deal that the parties are trying to put in place is a monetary fine, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, shaped uh, in a way that is similar to antitrust fines, so it's particularly significant. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be the greater of uh, twice uh, the deal value or 1% uh, of global sales uh, in the affected uh, sector. So we may be talking about some serious money here. Wow. And then in terms of uh, consequences on the deal, depending on the type of deal, if it's a stock deal, essentially the voting rights uh, of the stock that gets transferred are suspended. And uh, the acquirer has a requirement to divest the interest uh, within 12 months. Uh, Whilst uh, if we're in an asset deal type of situation, uh, then uh, it's, uh, if you will, even worse, meaning that uh, both the resolution authorizing the transaction and uh, the actual contracts uh, implementing it uh, are null and void, which means that uh, anyone uh, without any kind of statute of limitation uh, could bring this up and uh, uh, essentially unwind the transaction. Uh, so the consequences can be severe. This clearly is like getting a parking ticket or something. You want to be compliant. You want to do things the right way. Chase Kanicki, hearing about the potential consequences of failing to report in Italy, does this come close to what you've heard that goes on in other jurisdictions for the, yeah. these types of penalties? It, it is. And I think we've explored a lot of jurisdictions in their FDI regimes. And I think it does vary but I think you know those that don't have those types of consequences in place are probably thinking about putting those types of consequences in place. And I think we saw that play out here in the U.S. over the course of the last few months. CFIUS stood up a pilot program back nice. in October that for the first time requires mandatory CFIUS notifications for foreign investments in critical technology companies. And failing to comply with that mandatory notification requirement can subject both parties to a penalty up to the value of the transaction. And so that's the first pilot program we've seen that puts these provisions of the statute in place, these mandatory provisions and the ability to penalize parties. But that's not going to be the last uh, mandatory notifications that we see. As the statute gets rolled out later this year into early next year, other types of transactions, foreign investments in the U.S., also are going to trigger this mandatory notification requirement, and we expect that failing to comply with that requirement will result in penalties. Absolutely. Well, like I said, it, it pays to be compliant, I think, because uh, the penalties can be staggering. But let's talk about how it's actually worked so far as transactions and deals have gone down. Stefano, how often has the government exercised these powers up to this point? And have you noticed a concentration in any particular industry or sector? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great question to try and put uh, all that we have discussed uh, into some kind of practical perspective, if you will. 
Let me just preface uh, this by saying that uh, essentially if uh, you notify a deal and the government wants to exercise their powers, uh, essentially the government can do either one of two things. And the general principle is that uh, the government should act uh, based on principles of uh, proportionality and uh, reasonableness. Mm -hmm. And therefore, let's say that uh, the default uh, consequence, if the government wants to exercise their powers, is imposing conditions uh, on the deal. And uh, the government also has uh, the power to outright veto the transaction, but this uh, should be limited to really exceptional circumstances where the imposition of conditions uh, would not be sufficient to protect essentially the interests of the government. So having said that, uh, over the last uh, seven years, uh, the government uh, has screened uh, about 120 deals and uh, it is interesting to note that uh, 60% of the deals uh, that got screened uh, in that time period were screened uh, over the last two years. Okay. So this shows uh, a significant uptick uh, in terms uh, of uh, control on the part of the government uh, of pending uh, transactions. And uh, of all those deals that have been screened, uh, the government uh, has uh, exercised uh, their powers in 14% uh, of the filings, mostly, you know, consistently with what I was saying before, by imposing conditions, uh, and only in one case uh, has the government uh, vetoed the transaction. And uh, let's say that 70% uh, of the cases uh, where the government decided to take action were in the segment of defense and national security, as was uh, that uh, only case in which the, the government vetoed the, the deal. Yeah, I'm not surprised. In fact, that was going to be my next question. It's like, I got to know. Tell me which one. And I think it was probably <laughs> <laughs> defense-oriented. So awesome. All right, let's wrap it up with this. Let's say we all want to do the right things. We want to remain compliant. How does a would-be investor ensure compliance with Italian FDI regs and avoid, you know, getting blindsided or surprised while they're trying to get a deal done? What do you recommend, Stefano? Well, essentially, my recommendation is, uh, number one, in this uh, climate, uh, not to take uh, anything for granted, meaning that uh, the old categories uh, to some extent, no longer apply because of these latest uh, extensions, uh, essentially to encompass uh, a much broader variety of uh, products. So in our view, essentially, diligence is key. And uh, my recommendation would be for a proposed purchaser to kind of approach FDI screening in the same way as uh, it's done for antitrust, for instance. Mm -hmm. So by facing this upfront in the diligence process and by essentially correlating the output of the business diligence, uh, which focuses uh, on uh, essentially the production lines of the target and the types of products uh, that get manufactured mm -hmm. with the legal diligence uh, in such a way that uh, if uh, there is a risk that uh, some of the products may fall in one of the affected areas, uh, this gets flagged upfront and uh, then uh, the parties will decide uh, how to proceed from there. Real good, real good. Chase Kanicki, this could be a heavy lift for a company, right? In-house counsel or if they're bringing an outside counsel, whatever. This is a lot to worry about, isn't it? 
It is. And I think we've been talking about all these different jurisdictions. And so it's not only having to worry about if the company's headquartered in the U.S., for example, I mean, you clearly that rings a U.S. bell and you need to think about CFIUS. Or if the company, the target company is headquartered in Italy, that also would probably trigger, you know, you to think about the Italian FDI regime. But it's also not just where these companies are headquartered. You have to take a broader approach as to where that target company has operations outside of its headquarter country. For example, a company that's headquartered in Italy may have operations in Germany and France and doing the same types of activities they're doing in Italy and those other countries, uh, which, of course, in that scenario, you need to think about the other FDI regimes in those other countries. And so it really, I, I echo what uh, Stefano said, that you really need to map this out at the beginning of a deal and figure out where the touch points are and where the real risks are. This is no time to cut corners, that's for certain. Hey, gentlemen, learned a lot, as always. Stefano, Chase, thank you so much for being here today. Let's do this again soon. We'll watch developments, and as there's more to report, we'll have you guys back on. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks. You can find information on Jones Day's M&A and government regulation practices at jonesday.com. You can find complete bios for Stefano and Chase there, too. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, and Stitcher. And while you're there, check out some of our previous podcasts on foreign direct investment. As always, we thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.